You are Locked On Marlins, your daily podcast on the Miami Marlins, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. This is the Locked On Marlins podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. And as always, I'm your host, Aram Layton. I'm a Marlins writer as well as a minor league play-by-play broadcaster. And today is Saturday, January 2nd. Yes, it's a Saturday evening. And I am speaking about Ross Detweiler and the Miami Marlins on January 2nd. Far from the Major League season coming up, that's what I chose to do with my Saturday evening. But you know what? I'm excited about it because not only do the Marlins pick up a bullpen arm, and while it's not the most exciting thing in the world, they also are rumored to be looking for an outfield bat. And the fact that they're just even rumored to be looking for anything is relatively exciting considering how dormant the offseason has been and how quiet the Marlins have been. So I'm going to talk about Ross Detweiler and why... Yes, of course, it's not Brad Hand, and it's not that exciting of a pickup, but he is better than I think many of you may think he is. When you look at the numbers and when you look at the large career scale, kind of throw that out because last year was the first year of this version of Ross Detweiler that we saw. He went from not using a slider to implementing it to being his favorite pitch, and that's where it was a lot different for him this year or this past year. He was pretty much a lefty specialist, which he had never been in the past, was exclusively working out of the bullpen. So I'm going to dive into Detweiler a little bit, and then the more fun part is going to be talking about the outfield options for the Marlins, specifically right fielder. Apparently, according to John Heyman's report, the Marlins are looking for a right fielder who bats from the left side, a little bit specific, but the Marlins have a few of those guys in their farm system, so it looks like this is just what they want for a stopgap for the next year or so. So considering that, that is what I factored into looking at some of these options for the fish to pick up in this offseason, assuming they are going to go out and get somebody and that John Heyman report is correct. So I'm going to start with Ross Detweiler. And while I'm not jumping out of my chair about this one, and while I don't think it is a game changer, it was a much needed spot for the Marlins and it undoubtedly makes their bullpen at least a little bit more experienced and a little bit more solid because the Marlins did not have that swing and miss lefty. As I've said in the past, I love Richard Blyer, but he's not really that guy you bring in to get lefties out or strike them out in a jam. He's more the guy that you bring in to get a ground ball, whether it's against a lefty or a righty. His splits are pretty consistent. He's very solid, but they needed somebody that gets the swings and misses against lefties. And Detweiler wasn't really that guy in the past, but as he reinvented himself out of the bullpen this past year, he became that guy. As I said before, kind of ignore the track record because just as relievers can become terrible after a very good year, they can become very good after a bad year, right? It works both ways, especially when they move from the rotation to the bullpen. While Detweiler was a swing man, he had not really exclusively had a role carved out, and he finally did with the White Sox. And it seemed to be a role that he adapted his arsenal to, which was focusing on getting left-handed hitters out. And after not using a slider whatsoever in 2019, it became his most used pitch this past season. And it was a very good pitch at that. He adjusted the grip. He adjusted the way he threw it. And it became much, much better. And when you look at the numbers, it backs it up. After eradicating it in 19, most used pitch in 20, and left-handed hitters hit just 194 against him and 125 
against that slider. Overall, the whiff percentage up from 16% to 27.9%, which is incredible, nearly double. And he had a 17% whiff rate for his career. So he carved out this role now, and he was able to excel at just picking apart left-handed hitters. The zone contact dropped 10%, which was big for me because Detweiler had often been a pitch-to-contact guy in his career, but now out of the bullpen, you want more swing and miss, and the zone contact dropping is a great sign because that means he doesn't have to pick at the corners and try to get guys to chase to get them to swing and miss. He's got a good enough slider now and a sinker that he can get guys to swing through balls in the strike zone or on the corners instead of just trying to nibble at the corners and make them chase He can get them to miss at pitches in the zone, and that's just a testament to the slider improving. I think he instantly slides in as the Marlins' best southpaw in terms of getting swings and misses. Not Brad Hand, but definitely a pickup that they needed, and overall, I like the move for the Marlins. I would have loved to have seen them spend a little bit more money and be more aggressive, but at least they're addressing a need and not rolling into the season with Tarpley and Vessia and saying, okay, this is going to be the two guys that get the strikeouts of Freddie Freeman and Juan Soto and Bryce Harper. Now, at least Detweiler is a guy that has a plus pitch and can really get anybody out when it's on and will definitely be a piece for the Marlins that helps them and gives them a little bit more versatility and just consistency and veteran know-how out of that bullpen. More exciting now, I'm going to get into some outfield options for the Marlins, who they could potentially bring in and satisfy the need of a left-handed hitting right fielder and somebody that can offer them some more power. They are among the bottom of the league when it came to isolated power this past year. Though the offense was improved, it was still not where it needs to be. The offense is never going to be the catalyst for the Marlins, at least for the, not for the next year or two. But if they can ride some good pitching and add one more quality bat, the offense should be good enough, assuming some of the young players can make strides and contribute. And I don't expect too much regression. I also expect Corey Dickerson to return more to the form that we've seen in his entire career rather than what was a wacky year for him last year. Overall, I think the Marlins offense should make some strides, especially if they address the catching position as well. So I'm going to get into some of those targets in just a moment. But a reminder that this episode is brought to you by betonline.ag, the only website we trust to put our bets in. And right now, there is so much going on in the sports world. You got bowl season, you got the college football playoff championship coming up. I mean, I don't know if you put any bets on this past weekend. I was not expecting Clemson to go down like that. So hopefully that didn't burn you. If it, if it did burn you, the good news is if you use the promo code locked on at betonline.ag, you'll get a 50% welcome bonus to your deposit. So if you deposit $100, you get an extra $50 for free with the promo code locked on. That's one word, locked on. There's only one place that has you covered and one place we trust. That's betonline.ag for a 50% welcome bonus with the promo code Locked on. This episode is also brought to you by Built Bar. 18 delicious flavors, all taste like a dessert, covered in chocolate, easy to chew, great for a keto diet because they're low in sugar, they're low in fat, low in carbs, high in protein. Whether you're trying to lose or maintain weight while indulging in a delicious treat, Built Bar is perfect for you. And guess what? If you use the same promo code at BuiltBar.com, you will get 20% off your next order and a free cooler while supplies last. That's promo code locked on at BuiltBar.com for 20% off your next order and a free cooler while supplies last. So let's get into the fun part. 
some of these options that the Marlins could potentially add. And I can't start with anybody other than Cole Calhoun because it makes so much sense. Check with the left-handed swing. Check right fielder. So he fits those qualifications as well. We know that the Marlins had some interest in Calhoun last offseason, ultimately deciding to go with Corey Dickerson, who I had actually preferred as well. I will admit it, but Calhoun was much more productive this past year, putting up 16 home runs and was seventh in all of baseball and isolated power tied with Jose Abreu. I know it's a shortened season and over a 162 game scale. I doubt he keeps up with the MVP Abreu, but still just a crazy figure from Cole Calhoun and continuing what was a spectacular 2019 for him too, probably his best offensive season. If you look over his last 206 games, he's hit 49 home runs. So the power has been there more than ever for Cole Calhoun, and he's incredibly productive at that right field spot. Sure, the ball sails out of Arizona a little bit more, but he was hitting the ball really hard in 2019 too. I've never been the biggest Cole Calhoun fan, admittedly. I think that I just look at him, I like to see a guy that could put the ball in play with a little bit more consistency and the low batting average routinely, you can almost pencil him in for 230, 240 every year, was a bit frustrating for me in terms of a guy that I'm going to look at for a target. I will say though, if Calhoun continues on this trend that we've seen beyond just the power, the walk rate rising, then I can stomach the lower batting average a little bit more than I maybe initially thought because he put up his best career walk rate in 2019 at 11.1%. And then he topped that in 2020 with a 12.3% walk rate. If he's going to walk at that clip, then I can tolerate the 230, 240 batting average because he's seems like you can pencil him in for 25, 30 home runs. And not to mention, he's a great defender in right field, one of the better right fielders in all of baseball. He's a human highlight reel. Even though he doesn't look like he would be, he's 5'10 and stocky, but he lays out, makes some crazy plays, has a great arm in right field and tracks the ball really well. The Marlins could use that out there. And now with Marte and Calhoun out there, that's a pretty good defensive outfield. And why not just trade with the Diamondbacks again? Clearly the Marlins and the Diamondbacks have something going on right now. They've got a good relationship and Calhoun would not be too expensive financially or prospect-wise. He's 33 years old. He's due $8 million this coming year, which is not steep at all, and also has a club option for 2022 for $9 million, which I think is a perfect situation for the Marlins here. You're not strapped to another year, but you do have the choice to bring him back if you want to, and that's perfect because the Marlins want to have their prospects get at bats. And if there's some prospects that are dominating through the minor leagues this year that are making a push to the major leagues, they are going to clear some room for them at bats wise, unless Calhoun's on an absolute tear or Dickerson's on an absolute tear and the Marlins are making a playoff push. Ultimately, the Marlins are going to opt to get that development in for the prospects. They've said that already, but let's say the prospects aren't seeming like they're ready, which is a very feasible outcome given that a lot of them have struggled right now. You could say, all right, I think Bladet's another year off. Uh, Jesus Sanchez isn't the guy that we thought he might be. Let's have Cole Calhoun give us another year and we'll put him in there in the outfield and pick up that option for $9 million. Also, keep in mind, Marte would probably be moving on unless the Marlins decided to bring him back. I doubt it after this $12.5 million option, but you never know. He might turn into a guy that the Marlins really like having in the clubhouse and they bring him back. I would assume long term that's not really the plan. So maybe the Marlins just opt to bring back Calhoun on $9 million option instead. Also, remember, Corey Dickerson would be gone as well. So it just gives them some more options and flexibility and just 
a chance to potentially bring that in and, and pick up that option instead of trying to bring back Corey Dickerson or Marte. You could be okay with those guys going and picking up that option for Calhoun and then figuring out what you're going to do with your prospects from there. Or you can decline the option on Calhoun and bring back Dickerson or somebody else, which I would find to be rather unlikely. I overall am warming up to the idea of Calhoun more so than anybody else. I would say that Calhoun is probably the best option for the Marlins, given that it would be cheap prospect-wise, given that you have that option for 2022, given that he's actually playing the best baseball that he's played now going into his age 34 season. That's why I'm not too concerned about his age And with the club option, it's not really too much liability or risk there. And the Marlins already have a pipeline with the Diamondbacks making deals back and forth. It could make sense to make a deal there. Next up is somebody that I've seen floated a ton and is another guy that I've warmed up to more the more I look at the peripherals. But I would still put Calhoun probably just a little bit ahead of him because of the Marlins' short-term and long-term plans. But Eddie Rosario is another interesting option for the Marlins, just 29 years old, was not tendered a contract by the Twins, which was somewhat surprising, but also not, because you look at the numbers and you're like, this guy hits 30 home runs or 25 to 27 home runs almost every year. Why would the Twins not want him back? Well, he's allergic to walks. He's a very bad defender. And so you can maybe understand why the Twins didn't see the value there to have to ultimately pay him over $10 million most likely. And it's more likely now that he's going to get in the six to $8 million range. Nobody traded for Rosario. He was actively on the block for about a year and a half from what I had heard, even maybe longer than that. And just nobody was really willing to give up the prospects that was worth it for the twins to trade him away before eventually non-tendering him. And I think that was probably because of the fact that he was routinely in the bottom 10% of the league or lower, often in the bottom 2% when it came to walks, and then was one of the worst defensive outfielders in 2019 with a negative 9.3 fielding runs above average total. That was fifth worst among all outfielders. So you look at those two things, and that really affected his win above replacement total, and it kind of clouded the offensive production. But what I will say is at the end of the day, he's still producing on offense and the Marlins really are starved for power. I like Calhoun a little bit more just because of the well-roundedness and the defense and the veteran know-how and the fact that his walk rate has been ascending. But Rosario did show some changes in 2020. Again, it's a smaller sample size. So are we sold on these changes as this was, was this something that was tangibly improving for him or was it just a coincidence because a 50 game sample size a few little things here and there, a weird one or two week stretch, and that can alter the entire numbers for the whole quote unquote season. So that's where it's a little bit confusing and you got to gauge it here and see if you're sold on Rosario being a little bit different because I'll take you through the numbers. His zone swing percentage went down 11% and typically you don't like to see a zone swing percentage go down because it means they're not swinging at pitches in the strike zone as much. But Rosario's was so ridiculously high that you can't just think about it as swinging at pitches in the strike zone. Think about it also as there's pitches that are in the strike zone that are pitchers' pitches. If it's a 1-0 count, you don't need to be swinging at a two-seamer down and away, running away from you, and that you're going to flare off the end of your bat, right? You just shut it down or don't swing at that. Or if it's a 1-0 count and some guy throws a nasty hammer and you still try and hit it and you roll over, like why? Why bother swinging at that? Just shut it down, take the strike, and you're still in a 1-1 count. That's just a specific example, but I think that was a big thing for Rosario is his strikeout rate was never high. His walk rate was always incredibly low, 
And I think part of the reason why he was not able to be as productive was that he was swinging at a lot of pitchers' pitches. Even though they're in the strike zone, it doesn't mean you have to swing. It's very situational and pitch dependent. Same thing with the first pitch of the at-bat, which he actually swung at less than ever as well, down 8.5% from the previous year's total. You're only going to swing at the first pitch of the at-bat if it's what you're looking for. But I think Rosario was just looking for anything, and he was willing to swing at anything. But personally, right, I'm always looking middle in when I was playing for the first pitch. Fastball middle in, if it's not there, I'm going to take it and, and go from there. And unless I was facing a specific pitcher where I knew something or I felt something different, that would usually be my rule of thumb. And for Rosario, I don't know if he really even had that approach. I think he kind of just went up there and was just like, swing. I'm ready to go. Swing, swing, swing. And wherever it was, he was just going to try and put the bat on it and put it in play. That was not really conducive to, one, putting up a high on base percentage, two, being a productive player at the plate. And that's why you saw his peripherals kind of suffer. But this past year, the chase percentage dropped 4%. The first pitch swing drops. The zone swing drops. The walk rate rises to a career high of 8%. If he could sustain a walk rate at 8%, I'm very happy with that, with Rosario. And all of a sudden, he's a much more productive player than I think maybe many would think. And I think a lot of teams might be kicking themselves for not going out and getting him if that's the hitter that he can potentially be. But I think a lot of teams are not really sold on him being a average defensive outfielder. And I don't know if teams are totally sold on the fact that he has a newfound plate discipline. So that's where the question lies. I think there's no doubt the one and two options that are the best are Rosario and Calhoun. They fit the left-handed power bat that can play right field. Calhoun's superior defense by a large margin is going to give him a little bit of the edge and consistency at the plate and improving walk rate. But I would say Rosario is a phenomenal option as well. And the Marlins don't have to tie too much to him either. I mean, he was just declined a $10 million option, basically. It wasn't really an option, but he wasn't tendered a contract that was expected to be around that range. So I would assume he'd get something in the two years, $15 million range, which is in the Marlins price point. And I think that they can handle that and it wouldn't be too much liability there. You could also ship him out after one year. I'm sure a team, if Rosario has a good season, the Marlins have prospects coming up, they could probably find a suitor. But also, like I said earlier, keep in mind, if Rosario is good this year and let's say the Marlins pick him up, Corey Dickerson's gone the next year. And Rosario is probably more of a left fielder than a right fielder. You could slot him into left and then figure out where you're going to put the prospects from there. And that's not a bad option for the fish there either. So both of these guys are kind of two-year deal type of options and could be very beneficial and offer some flexibility for the fish. The last thing I'll say on Rosario is that he nearly matched his walk total this past year in 80 less games. He had 22 walks the previous season. He had 19 walks this past year in 80 less games. Also a career low BABIP. So maybe those improved plate discipline numbers will translate to some better production numbers this coming year. One other option I've seen floated around that I'm not too keen on, not because I'm not too sold on him, uh, as being an average or above average player, I just don't know if the price is going to meet the value there. And it's Ian Happ. I think he's going to be incredibly costly. The Cubs are going to want a top 100 prospect, especially when they're not getting really the, quite the return that they might have thought they wanted for you, Darvish even though they know that the market's just not going to be there for a guy that's going to be owed as much money as Darvish is, $60 million over three years. They still got a pretty solid return, as I talked about on the Locked On MLB Prospects podcast. But Ian Happ, you know, I think with his age, his controllability, the torrid streak that he had in July where he put up an OPS just under 1100 that was where people were like, oh, did this switch hitting outfielder that was a top prospect for a long time finally figure it out? 
maybe, but I don't think so. I think he's a very solid player. I think you can pencil him in for roughly 270, 20 home runs moving forward. I just don't know if it's going to be worth what the Marlins are going to have to give up, especially with the prospects they have on deck. I think when you have a Boudet, when you have a Burdick and some of these other guys, I don't know if it's worth just giving up a lot for 27-year-old Ian Happ, 26, 27-year-old Ian Happ that's still trying to figure himself out at the plate. Also, over his last 22 games, he regressed mightily, went back to a 645 OPS over those final 22 games. Still, the overall numbers were very solid. 866 OPS was on pace to put up his best home run total since his rookie season. But the fact that his rookie season was his best year and there was some rough patches in between and the Cubs didn't really want to stick with him, I think the asking price is going to be high for them because of the fact that they let Schwarber go, because of the fact that he's pretty cheap and the Cubs are kind of looking or definitely looking to cut costs. I don't really see the Cubs doing it unless the return is something that just makes way too much sense for them. And that's why I think the Marlins are maybe not the best trade partner for an Ian Happ. A couple other underrated options, I guess. Not too exciting. But if the Marlins are going to continue on this Ross Detweiler type of track, Robbie Grossman could be an interesting acquisition. 826 OPS in 2020, 126 WRC+. plus. But this was an outlier season. And was it an outlier because of the fact that it was an outlier? Or was it a newfound swing and improvement from Grossman? And this is what we could expect moving forward. I think it's more likely that the former is true. But maybe, just maybe, Grossman figured something out at the plate. If I was working for the Marlins in the scouting department or in the front office, I would definitely be watching hours of video to make my hypothesis on that. I didn't have the time to do that with Grossman. I just looked at the numbers there. And that's something I might have to look into more if the Marlins are rumored to be interested in him or especially if they decide to pick him up. But he is a left-handed hitting bat that did have eight home runs this past year and had his best offensive season. Uh, I don't know if that's a Robbie Grossman we can expect moving forward. Probably not. But he does fit some of the qualifications for the fish there and could be an option. Somebody I'm more excited about that could fit in nicely is Jerks and Profar. Still only 27 years old. I think he feels like he's 32 because he was a top prospect for so long. Battled a lot of injuries early on. But you know what? He started to figure it out. He was great for the Padres last year. He had 20 home runs in 2018. He had 20 home runs in 2019. He was on pace for 20 home runs this year as well. He's a switch hitter who doesn't strike out. While he's not a right fielder, he could play left field. He could play right field if he needed to. He's got a good enough arm. He was a shortstop coming up through the minor leagues. And he can also play second base where he played a lot of in the, or with the Padres, excuse me, this past year. And that's an important type of thing that the Marlins should look for, I think. Because if John Birdie is not, you know, the guy that he's been the last couple of years, I could see John Birdie slowing down as he's a guy that's very dependent on his speed and somebody that spent so long in the minors already on the other side of 30. Profar would be a great hedge to Birdie not being maybe as much of the player as they thought, especially if Jazz Chisholm or Isan Diaz struggles. That would be a spot where the Marlins could put in Profar and just have an upgrade over Birdie. Also, if it's a tough left-handed pitcher on the mound that day and you want to protect Jazz or Isan, you can put Profar in and that would obviously be a better option than Birdie offensively. I think Profar would slot in as a pretty solid leadoff hitter for the Fish too, and it's a team that really doesn't have a clear-cut leadoff hitter, and he could platoon in the outfield with Cooper. He could platoon at second base. You can bounce him around. He could play first base even. He can do everything, and I think that's a cool guy to have on your team. 
While he doesn't directly satisfy that need that the Marlins reportedly are looking for, he is an interesting option and does give the Marlins a left-handed bat as a switch hitter and has a little bit of power. We'll give them a power jolt because I think the Marlins would take 15 to 20 home runs in a second right now, and he does offer some versatility there. So nothing too sexy, I would say. You know, you can look at some trade options like Joey Gallo and stuff like that, but I just don't think that makes any sense and isn't very realistic for the Marlins. One other guy, we could stick with the Diamondbacks, David Peralta, more of a left fielder, and I think if the Marlins are going to trade with the D-backs, it makes more sense to go for Calhoun, but another type of guy that could fit the mold as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know Ross Detweiler is not the most exciting acquisition of all time, but if the Marlins do pick up one of these bats that I just mentioned, they will undoubtedly be better going into next year and have a little bit of an offensive jolt, which was much needed. As always, thank you for listening, and I look forward to talking Marlins baseball with you very soon.